This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Rob Beer. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Beer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. If you're listening right now and you have any comments or questions during our show, give us a call. The lines are open. Our number here is 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. I'm thrilled to welcome my next guest, Chris Sakalakis. Chris, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining me in the studio. Thanks for having me. So Chris is a longtime Bay Area tech executive. He's now the CEO of the App Marketplace Vivino, it's a wine marketplace, I should say, and an app on the iPhone and Android, I'm sure, Yes, uh, called Vivino. He was previously and quite notably the president of StubHub and an executive at eBay, so he understands marketplaces better than just about anybody in the world. Business Radio listeners will also recognize him as a guest host of Bay Area Ventures. Chris, again, thanks for joining us. And, um, you know, would would love to hear about what is Vivino? Vivino is uh, the number one wine app. It is the best way to uh, rate, discover, and buy wine online. So for anybody who's listening, go to your iPhone, go to your Android phone, and search on Vivino, and they can download the app. They can download the app, and if they're just interested in buying wine, they can go to the website as well, Vivino.com. But the the basic idea started in 2010 where our founder wanted to answer a very simple question. How the hell am I going to decide which wine to buy from this huge wall of wine? And the answer was, well, I can use my phone and rely on the wisdom of crowds to do that. So with the app, you can scan a wine label. Uh, We'll give you the rating for that wine based on what other people have rated it. You can give your own rating. And uh, more often than not, you can actually buy that wine. So – when he got started, how do you solve this proverbial chicken and egg problem of getting enough data into the system for the ratings and to have all the wines that are out there? Because I'm guessing there must be millions of SKUs of wine, shopkeeping units of wine that are out there be- between the years and the producers and the yeah. vineyards. We have 9 million wines in our database, and there are about 2 million that are actively being scanned uh, in any given month. Holy cow. Uh, we didn't start with that many. So <laughs> I, it started uh, just focused on the Danish market and focused on wines that were readily found and uh, and building out ratings that the way. The Danish market? That's where the company started. It started in Copenhagen. Holy cow. So uh, Heine Zachariasen is our founder, and he is Danish, started in, uh, in Denmark. Um, and he moved the company headquarters to the U.S. Uh, five years later. Uh, because uh, the U.S. is the largest, single largest wine market in the world. And was it an iPhone app at the time, or did it start as a web app and then move to the phone? No, it started as just a mobile app. Um, it was just used for mobile, and the idea was, again, you have all this technology in the palm of your hand, uh, uh, scan the wine label and find out if this is good wine or not. So what kind of tech is in this? Is, when you scan it, do you take a picture of the front of the bottle or do you take a picture of the UPC code? Uh, no, uh, there are a lot of wines that don't have a UPC code. So it's, it is based on image recognition of the actual label okay. at the front of the bottle. And so we actually have two services. One reads the text and the other reads the image and matches it against our database and then brings it all back within a matter of seconds to tell you this is the wine you're looking at and here's the rating. So maybe walk us through a demo. You have sure. a, a, de- a decoy, decoy. I have a decoy, a 2015 decoy Cabernet Sauvignon from uh, Sonoma County. Okay. And uh, that's what I can see here. And there's a uh, picture of a duck <laughs> on the uh, on the label. So if and you I just take a picture of it. Yeah. Take out the app. Uh, there's a there's a little camera icon on the app. Take a photo of it. Um, and the image recognition can be used for wine, for multiple wines uh, at a time, and it can also be used for wine lists if you go into a, a restaurant. But I it literally, I just did it. The decoy comes up as uh, you know a four a four star rating, four point zero out of five, which is quite good. Uh, Fifty one hundred ratings, so it's it's not just fifty one hundred people. people. Fifty one hundred people have rated in on th- this this wine. 
Uh, we know that the average price for this wine is $20 based on the 13,000 or so uh, wine websites that we scrape. And you can buy it directly in the app for that price at, at $19.99 from SoCal Wine and Spirits. We're in San Francisco here. so they And it usually arrives in two to four days. My experience is it usually arrives in two days. Um, and you can do that all in the app. So we've had people use the app to purchase, let's say, 50 bottles of Opus 1, um, uh, costing nearly $14,000. They did it all in the app itself on an iPhone uh, or 24 cases of an $18 bottle of wine. Um, they did that from the app also. What's the biggest order you've ever had come through? It's, Is it it's this that one Opus you're talking one. about, yeah. 14000 It was just under $14,000. And, uh, again, all How did you find out about it? Apps. Did somebody call you and say, hey, by the way? About the order? Yeah. Uh, I found out about it by asking people at Vivino. I've only been there two and a half months. Okay. So this is a new gig for me. Um, but, yeah, these are, these are the types of things that happen once you kind of build trust with your uh, customer base. We actually had um, a customer who last year was only buying you know, $15, $20 at a time, and this year has already spent $1,200 on, on us. Um, so we, we have a lot of repeat customers. And, and what else could you share about the scale of where Vivino is today? You talked about the 9 million wines in the database. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, – the, the, the app has been downloaded about 30 million times. Whoa. We, we have millions of monthly active users. Uh, we are – we have active users in every country in the world. Uh, we also have uh, a marketplace, uh, the ability to buy wine in 11 countries. So the U.S., Canada, eight European countries, and Hong Kong, which is our latest market. Um, so we have a kind of a broad global scope. And as I mentioned, we're the number one wine app. So if you ever search for wine in, in the app stores or Google Play stores, you're going to find Vivino first. So when you think about adding features to a product like this, I could imagine a feature that anybody that's taken somebody out on a date and they're trying uh-huh. to decide what wine do I want to have, you could go and you could check it bottle by bottle and type it in and maybe get some information online or Google it that way. Or there could be a feature where you just take a picture of the page and maybe you put information in about what price you would want to pay, et cetera, and give you know, feedback. How do you think about where you go from where you are today evaluating these wines to going to the next step of doing things that might have AI integrated and allow people to do those sorts of use cases? Yeah, so just to answer your question about that feature, we do have that feature. You can scan a wine list, and we can give you the rating for every wine on the list. And you can see – That's unbelievable. Yeah, quickly and numerically, you can see which which are the highest-rated wines. The next step is really looking at the price associated with that wine to figure out what's the best value. But we can help you get beyond the by the second cheapest wine uh, pretty quickly today. So and that's to figure out whether in. you're making a year mistake, a vintage mistake, or something like that when you look at it as well. Yes, you can, you can do that. It's a little – it's not 100% perfect. But it's coming. But it's coming, and, and that – what's available today is actually really useful. I've already used it multiple times to just figure out if you're buying wine by the glass, which is the best wine in the, in the red wine category. So with all this data that you have coming in, what were some of the – the big surprises that start to unfold when you look at this aggregation of millions of monthly active users, 30 million downloads, 9 million wines in the database? Well, we can see what people really like. So uh, most of the use of the app are scans. So we know from your scans what types of wines you're looking at are potentially interested in. Uh, More people scan than rate, but there are also ratings as well. And based on that, we can start to personalize the wines that we show to you. So we're just only starting to do that in the app. We also send out targeted emails for wines that are uh, on offer at a, at a discount. And these are deals we negotiate in, in the 10 countries that we're in. Um, but, but we look at your activity in the app to understand what type of wine you're going to like, and then we offer that up to you. So we're starting, we're going to take the information we have. We have all these ratings and they also have written reviews. So that is uh, it's data that it hasn't been codified or classified, but we're doing that with AI on, on the back end, and we'll we'll put descriptors together to start telling people, okay, here's the profile of this wine beyond just a rating, how tannic is it, how fruity is it, uh, those those types of dynamics, and we'll be able to start showing you that deeper data just based on what people have written about about the wines to how, date. How big is the company in terms of employees now? We're about 130 people. 
there are half of the team is in uh, Copenhagen where we have all of our product and technology. And uh, we have about 30 people here in San Francisco, a dozen people in Dublin where we have sales and customer service. And we have two people each in the countries where we have uh, deals. These are two people who are wine industry experts, go out, find the wines that make sense for that market, and then uh, build them into these deals that we do. It's, it sounds pretty – it sounds like a pretty big opportunity because the more data you get, the more people that use the marketplace, the more you can prioritize which wines, which types of wines you want to go deeper on, yeah. make recommendations on, et cetera. Yeah, and not only that, we can really drive value. So uh, maybe you've heard of Decoy. It's a pretty well-known brand, and obviously it does well for, at four stars. But if you were to look at the wine page for this wine and scroll down to the bottom, we could show you – uh, another wine at the same price point at $20 but has a higher rating or uh, a wine at, uh, at four stars that's actually less expensive. Um, so we can start to give you alternatives and we can start to tell you how any particular wine uh, matches up in terms of value relative to other wines in that uh, varietal, so other Cabernet Sauvignons in the case of the decoy. So I'm sure you're well trained on the PR front. <laughs> when you when you look at the environment for wine apps, who are the different players that are in the space? There there aren't any really interesting ones anymore. Delectable was one uh, was a key competitor for a while, but they have. I mean, we have orders of magnitude um, users versus versus them. Okay, so, so you're the clear leader. It sounds like in the space, ten x anybody else in, in wine. Of- yeah, in wine apps, the real competition now is on the e-commerce side. So consider the company started in 2010. We only started doing deals in 2014. The marketplace part of the business where we have wine stores that are fulfilling these orders started in 2016. So that's really the newest part of the business, and that's where we have a different, slightly different set of competitors. And most of the wine in the world is bought in grocery. Uh, online, some groceries, many of them around the world sell online also, but we have other, another set of competitors when it comes to buying wine online. So it's a new frontier. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Launchpad. I'm Rob Connybeer on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Chris Sakalakis. He is the CEO of Wine Marketplace Vivino and former president of StubHub. So where's the company going? What should people be expecting from Vivino going forward? Well, for the Vivino users out there, you should expect uh, a lot more, uh, a much larger ability to buy wine. Uh, a lot more personalization, uh, and more reasons to engage with us. So we, as an example, we just started an integration with Foursquare so that if you walk into a restaurant, we can start to give you recommendations about which wines to try at that restaurant because we'll know the wine list and we'll know what you like. Um, and that's the way of the future for us. Um, the main focus right now... Oh, you don't even have to look at the wine list. You could actually just check in on Foursquare and then you'll find out, well, oh, no. yeah, this is what you... You don't need to check in on Foursquare. We're using Foursquare in the background because of their location technology. So we can notify you. If you allow notifications of Avino, we can notify you that, hey, this restaurant that you're in or that we think you're in has has these wines that we think you'll like based on your previous experience and based on our knowledge of the wine list. So Uh, think of that. And we have an idea of your budget as well. So you could even – or you could just say here are three things, high, medium, and low. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Um, so we we want to be able to uh, interact with people every time they interact with wine. The, really, the vision of the business is to be the largest and most trusted brand in wine worldwide. So shifting gears a bit, you mentioned that you joined two and a half months ago. Yes. How did you How did you connect with Vivino? How did you decide to join? What is that whole process of coming in and joining a company that has over a hundred people? What's it like to join as CEO, that whole process? It's been great so far. <laughs> People have treated me really well. I mean, the, the process initially was much like uh, other jobs. Uh, a recruiter contacted me. In this case, it was a recruiter that I knew from, from eBay who had gone into uh, recruiting. And she started telling me about the business, like, ah, the wine, you know, people have tried that. It's kind of old. And she's like, no, 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 it's, it's the number one wine app, and it has this great marketplace. And I said, marketplace, last you time. You said something magic to me. Yeah. Marketplace. But I also said, look, the last time I used the app, I didn't see any marketplace. I thought it was just a way to scan a, a wine label. It's kind of nice, but why would, I, why would I use it, and how does the company make money? Uh, and she said, no, no, it's a marketplace. You need to check it out. So I did. It was December 21st. I bought six bottles of wine from three different merchants. 
Um, two of them were in California, so I got them two days later. This is just before Christmas. Literally, I got them on the Friday before Christmas. And the other two bottles came a week later because they were coming from New York and I, because I was buying Greek wine. I'm Greek, in case you haven't picked it up from the last name. So I was like, this is actually a really great experience. And I, I don't even know about it. I knew about Vivino because the app had been around for a while, but I didn't know that you could even buy wine on, on Vivino. And it turns out even some of our loyal customers don't, don't know, know that. Yet. Yeah. So that's one opportunity that I saw. I then looked at the checkout process, and it really wasn't optimized for e-commerce. You know, I've been doing e-commerce since 96. So there are little things that I saw that could be a lot better. And they, they started quoting numbers to me about how much the company had done in, in uh, gross sales. And, and then I asked about marketing, and almost all of the uh, customer acquisition has been organic. There's been very, very little money paid on paid, paid marketing to acquire customers to acquire these orders. And I started to think, like, look, if you can actually start to optimize this business for e-commerce, improve the conversion rate from someone being a user to an actual buyer, and the buying experience is good, so being a repeat buyer, is, is an, that's, an, that's an easy hurdle to overcome. Um, you can actually start to build out this business with the, with the existing base. Then you can start to market and actually bring and well, blow out the I, business. I'd love to talk about the specifics, but there's – a point implicit in what you're talking about right now, which is pretty interesting, which is if a company makes a decision to bring in a CEO or a senior executive, yeah. there's this almost a fine line between things are going great, but there are things that clearly need improvement yeah. or are opportunities. And when you have something that has a loyal user base, lots of distribution, organic growth, that's great. And then when you see things that you know you can fix, that's got to be kind of exciting too because yeah. you don't just come in and go, okay, it's a great company. I love it. I'll just come in and we'll have you know fun staff meetings. It's really by coming in, there are these things that I know I can do from my experience right. at StubHub and right. eBay and other places where I can bring this knowledge to that, that it makes the pie bigger. Absolutely. I, I don't think I could say it any better than the way you said it, Rob. Uh, it was the opportunity to say we have all these great fundamentals and I have some ideas based on my experience that I know we can implement, that I know will be successful. And I think I can actually add value here without trying to sound arrogant. I think I can actually add something here because of my experience. So when you're coming in in a candidate in this role, what, what happens? So the recruiter tells you about it. What's the first meeting like with people at the company? Who do you meet? Did you meet the founder? Did you meet other executives, the investors? Well, you, you know this deal better than, than I do because we've, we've had an interaction about one of your companies. But, the, yeah, I met with the board of directors. So I, I met with, first with the chairman, then with uh, one of the other members of the board, and then with the founder. And so in this instance, which isn't always true, the founder was involved in the search uh, the founder is a great guy, uh, very creative, great founder, great entrepreneur. Um, he just didn't have the e-commerce experience. And so he built up this great business and came to the realization that maybe someone who had specific experience around building an e-commerce business could add some value. So he was very much involved uh, both, in the, uh, both in the discussion and even in the, the negotiations, the salary negotiations. Did you meet him here in Copenhagen? No, I met him here because he's based here. He's been here for five years. Um, what was a little strange about the experience was the rest of the company didn't know the search was happening, so all the meetings were happening in the office of Russell Reynolds, our, uh, the executive recruiter. I see. Uh, and, okay. And so uh, at some point I was like, you know, I'd really like to get a sense of the place, people. the people. Yeah. Uh, I'd only met with the CFO and the CEO at that point. And uh, can I just come into the office? You don't have to tell people who I am. I'm an I'm advisor, just, a friend, yeah, a potential I'm, board member. I'm just meeting with Heine. And I did, and I came in, and I was like, oh, okay, now I get it. You know, you get a flavor of a place just from the physical place, what, what people are doing, what they're saying, that type of thing. I didn't eavesdrop on conversations, but um, I got a real sense of the place. And, and one of the most pleasant surprises after I joined, because really I only met four people at the company before I joined, was how – how great the culture is, how positive the people are, hardworking, really smart, just want to get stuff done. They're not just there for the free wine. And how often have you been to Copenhagen now? I've been twice. In the first five weeks, I went twice, and I'm going again in a couple of weeks. And when you go, and we can make this a more general question, when you come in and you're running a company for the first time that has a long history of culture, 
How do those first few meetings go? I took the approach specifically of being a student. So I introduced myself to the company in the, um, in the way that only an ex-consultant could do with a PowerPoint presentation. And uh, then I said, look, I want to be a student. I want to understand the company from your eyes, from your perspective. And I asked people, you know, what's working, what's not working, and what's the one thing you'd want to see fixed? And I met with, in the first two weeks... That'd be a lot of one-on-ones you'd have. Exactly. And I, I, in the first two weeks, I had 30 one-to-ones with people in Dublin and Copenhagen and in San Francisco to get their perspective. And I kept track of what they said in a Google sheet and, um, and tallied it up and then presented it back to the folks to say, here's, here's what I heard and here's what I've seen. Here's my perspective. And so here's what we're going to work on. That sounds like a pretty exciting process to go through. Were there surprises for the organization? I wouldn't say there were lots of surprises for me because I spent a lot of time doing due diligence. I, I dug oh, into, in advance. In advance. Before okay. I even decided to take the job, I – I got many spreadsheets and uh, employee survey results, and uh, to the extent there are uh, net promoter score surveys, uh, looked at those, just the top-level metrics that I would want to have to run any business. What was surprising was how positive everyone was about the culture. Uh, out of 30 people, I got 30 positive mentions about culture in one form or another. People are great, hardworking. There's no BS, no, no jerks here, although people didn't say jerks. They said something else. Um, it's, so these are the types of things that uh, employees prided themselves on and felt were really true to the business. And when you look at something like that culturally, I think a lot of times people have cultural values. They throw everything in. We're ethical. We're hardworking. We do all these things. Do you have a philosophy of it's all those things or are there like three or four key ones that matter? It's funny you should ask because uh, about a month before I started the company was asking itself, what's our vision for the future? What are our values? What's our core purpose? They hadn't been written down. They obviously existed, but they hadn't been codified. Codified, yeah. And uh, so that that uh, process started before I started with the two founders um, and the head of marketing and head of design, the head of communications. And I jumped into the process and we started working and talking about values and for me, the values have to be ones that you can easily remember and ones that <laughs> you, you will judge every person coming into the, uh, into the business against those values, and they will be judged uh, and managed based on how well they personify those values. So the ideal is three. We came up with five, um, and those are ones that we will announce to the rest of Avino next week. So you can't tell me. I, you knew what my next question yeah, yeah. was going to be. I can't tell you, but I know what they are. And I feel like as a, as a sort of relative newcomer, it, I, they feel very true to me because it, it's been my experience. Okay. So they're not ethics, uh, but I'll give you one. I'll give you one. So one is uh, data-driven. So data-driven can be a lot of things. Lots of companies are data-driven. Why, why is Vivino data-driven? Let's start from the outside in. We are a company that's built on data. We are a company built on the ratings of wine. And so it's a very data-driven company. Not only – so that's external. Internally, it, this is a company where when presented with a problem, let's figure out what metric we're trying to solve for and let's go fix it. And I've seen that done with a lot of different people. Uh, and it's not uncommon in the Valley, I would say. But it, I have worked with companies where they're not really data-driven. It's all based on intuition or the, the CEO's opinion. And this is one where people say, no, no, this is what the numbers are saying. Let's keep working. Let's keep focusing on it. It's not a good or bad. It's just this is what the numbers are saying. Let's keep working on it until we hit the number. Is that something that you saw at eBay, StubHub, data-driven? Or what, what companies are famous for that? Uh, you know, the, uh, Google is famous for the OKR process, the objectives, uh, KPIs, key results. And key yeah. results. Um, so we use a similar process at StubHub. We use an OGSM process. It was objectives, goals, strategies, and metrics, the metric being the number. The way we ran StubHub was we had top-level goals and metrics for employee engagement, customer satisfaction, and financial results. And the financial results were gross sales, uh, net revenue, and operating income. And those things can be broken down into lower-level metrics. So gross sales is average order size times 
number of orders and number of orders is traffic times conversion or in our case monthly active users times orders per monthly active user so you can break down a problem into its constituent parts and as you move each number like average order size or uh, amount of traffic or monthly active users you you see what the impact is on the overall goal out of out of curiosity i'm sure and forgive me for my next comment you're looking forward to uncorking the five things next week yes. with your team. How do you communicate with the whole organization? Do you have weekly meetings, monthly meetings where it's all hands or how does it happen not just with your direct reports but other people in the organization? We have a monthly town hall where uh, I give an update and then we have a guest speaker who is much more popular than, than I am. And uh, the, the next one we have is next week. That's why I mentioned it. Uh, we also have a kind of a general Slack channel, uh, and uh, we can say many things about Slack, but it's people use it. And um, I use that to give an, uh, kind of a weekly update on what's happening with the business. When I was at StubHub, I had a, an email back, you know, that antiquated thing called email. Sure. Um, I sent that around. Free Slack channels. Yeah, I sent that around uh, every week, and that was long. It was like a 1,000 words. The Slack message is much, much shorter. No one's going to read a 1,000-word Slack message. Um, but the basic idea is the same. What, what am I as a CEO focused on? Um, what are the, what are the key metrics of the business that we're tracking and how are we doing against the plans that we've set for the company and saying that on a consistent basis. And that's another way to make sure people understand that we're data driven. And it seems to be a bit of a hallmark at tech companies because as I understand it, Facebook and Google still do similar things with relatively sensitive information to everybody in the organization. And I certainly don't remember that from with a couple of the industrial giants I worked with long ago. Yeah, it there within eBay. You know, we were the subsidiary, and at the initially weren't that big to worry about. Now StubHub financials are broken out in the financials, so I don't think they can do it the same way that that I did when I was there. But I think people really appreciate transparency. They want to know how's the business going, and it's it's much easier to think that that's real as long as when you quantify the numbers as opposed to saying, yeah, things are great. So we need to take a short break. Stay with us. When we're back, I'll continue my conversation with Chris Sakalakis of Vivino. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Honeybeer. I'm the founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. And I'm continuing my conversation this hour with Chris Sakalakis. He is the CEO, the new CEO of Wine Marketplace Vivino. And when we left off before the break, we were talking all about Vivino, what kind of company it is, and what it's like coming into a company like that that has over 100 employees as a CEO and helping take it to the next level after a lot of growth. But let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Chicago. Okay. And as I understand it, you're the the child of immigrant Greek parents. That's right. And see, what was it like growing up in Chicago? My parents were very much plugged into the Greek community in Chicago. So I went to a Greek Orthodox parochial school where all the other kids had parents born in Greece they taught us Greek for an hour a day. Um, my parents almost insisted on having almost any person they worked with being Greek. So my pediatrician was Greek. The do- uh, the dentist was Greek. Um, when the car <laughs> when the car needed to be repaired, it was a Greek guy. And uh, I felt that was very limiting in terms of quality. Uh, although my pediatrician and, uh, was great, um, and it was it was odd. I think you know I have had the experience a lot of uh, immigrant kids had have as well, where I was not one or the other. I, w- I was neither fish nor fowl. When I went to Greece in the summers, we were the American kids. And in Chicago, we were the Greek kids. And we didn't quite fit in. And, and what kids want to do is constantly, they want to fit in, right? Um, and it was difficult to fit in with, uh, you know, the neighborhood kids, down the street to whose mothers didn't yell in Greek uh, for so them no to come home. So no matter where you went, you had a funny accent. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, I have an American accent. I had a, an American accent. But when I entered kindergarten, I didn't speak any English. So 
certainly, you know, I'm born and raised in the United States, but um, it was always, I always felt kind of different. And the so, one. So wait a second. You showed up at kindergarten and you couldn't speak any English. That's right. Wow. Yeah. Because I'm the oldest and we had only lived in the neighborhood for a few months and we just spoke Greek at home. So that's what I spoke. So that must have been wild. You're going in and you're learning to finger paint, but you don't speak <laughs> the language. Yeah, I mean, I picked it up pretty quickly. My my mother tells a story of going to the first parent-teacher conference with my aunt, with her sister-in-law, as an interpreter, asking, <laughs> asking if how my English was. And she said, uh, his English is fine. Why? Don't you speak English at home? And my, and my mother is asking this in Greek through an interpreter. So maybe the kindergarten teacher wasn't that swift but the the bottom line was yeah i was i was this you know i was this immigrant kid who had this identity and who's you know my parents constantly talked about uh americans as being strangers you know literally the word in greek being xenos that's where xenophobia comes from and oh, wow and so and my parents had a dim view of american culture i'll tell you that they still do uh but you know don't marry a Greek. Don't marry an American woman. You're going to eat hamburgers and hot dogs all day. Like that was for you <laughs> what it was like to be an American. That is amazing. Yeah. So you did that all the way through. You you lived in this this environment, kind of the Greek community, until you graduated from high school. No, until eighth grade. Eighth and, grade. Yeah, and then in eighth grade, I uh, in kinder, for high school, I went to uh, a Catholic high school nearby where. A bunch of the neighbor kids went as well. And was this a suburb of Chicago? Suburb of Chicago, yes. I grew up in Bridgeview, and I, I went to St. Lawrence High School in Burbank, Illinois. So when you wanted to make a little bit of money to have fun in your spare time, mm -hmm. how did you do that as a high school student? Oh, well, I had an easy job built in. From the age of 12, I started working for my dad. My dad was, uh, electrical, was an electrical contractor, and he did not want us to be idle during the summers. He wanted us to learn the value of work. So <laughs> starting starting at, uh, starting in that summer when I when I turned twelve, he took us out to the job site as laborers. And I, I, by us, I mean my my brother and I, my brother Mike, who's a year younger. And we would trade off. Back then, we would trade off. I'd work one day, he would work the other day. But we get up at five or six in the morning, go work, come back home at four o'clock, and work hard. You know, working construction. Uh, and we were the gophers. We went. We got coffee. We got lunch. We went to the truck to get different stuff, pipes and so forth, uh, wire. And we learned the trade. We learned how to be basic electrician assistants. And I did that until college. Until wow. My after my sophomore year in college, I got smart and I got an internship in a nice office where I could wear a suit every day. But up until then, I worked for my dad every summer. So I have to ask this: Did you ever get electrocuted? Well, or, or did it never happen? I'm not electrocuted, but, but not, I've gotten not some shock. Died, but like some shock. Sure, sure. Do you remember where you were when that happened? Was it no. at like 12 or something? You're like, wow, that's that hurts. It's, it's routine. Um, <laughs> it, it's not that big a deal to get So it's kind of shocked. once a month it happens? Yeah. Like, like stubbing your toe? These plastic caps, you know, for the outlets, like what, did it, what is it are we protecting ourselves from, from a little shock? It's not that bad. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it would happen from time to time, but maybe, I don't know, I can think of like four or five times. Okay. Yeah. But it does happen. Sure. And it, it's not going to stop your heart. I mean, usually we were doing new construction, so we're usually not dealing with live wires. So you ended up at Penn, yeah. University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School. Yes. Good choice. Right. How did you end up at Penn? And I had this very broad ambition to go to an Ivy League school, but I really didn't understand what that meant growing up in Chicago. In 1985, when I was graduating high school, I got things in the mail from different universities. Uh, one university in particular called Bradley University in Peoria, I think, sent me something every single week. <laughs> and these things would pile up. And, and one Did that day, kind of catch your attention? Like, it it caught my like attention it? at their desperation is what it caught my attention of. Okay. Not, not to demean uh, Bradley University. Yeah. But I got something from the University of Pennsylvania, and I thought, why is a state school sending me <laughs> stuff in the mail? It seems odd. And I mentioned it to a friend of mine who said, oh, no, 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 the Penn is a, it's an Ivy League school. It's and a great school. Yeah, and they're really well known for their business school. I said, huh, I had no idea. So when I decided to apply to college, I applied to four, uh, seven colleges, four Ivies, and um, because Penn was known for Wharton, 
I applied to the Wharton program. Everywhere else, I applied to be a psychology major because that's what I thought I wanted to study. And uh, lo and behold, I got into Penn, and I got into Northwestern, and I got, got into the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. Yeah, but and only one is a ways from the Greek neighborhood. That's right. So the dis- my dad started asking around about this Penn place that he hadn't heard of. And luckily, he found someone he knew and respected who was a general contractor who had gone to Northwestern but had, but had gotten into Penn and had really wanted to go to Penn but couldn't because of the financial aid. And he said um, – he kind of realized that this was a, a big opportunity for me. In the meantime, my mom had her collection of Greek-American housewives um, who – were like, oh, yeah, Northwestern is this great school, which is a 45-minute drive from home. And she she really wanted me to go to Northwestern. Surprise. And it, and it came down to this discussion slash argument between the three of us about where to go. And I really wanted to go to Penn, and my dad was supportive, and that was what we decided. And at that point, my mom said, well, don't think you can go there and just screw around. That's Somehow I'm imagining in a Greek family that wasn't exactly a quiet, reasoned no, conversation. not at all. And it wasn't the way to celebrate someone getting into Penn either, but that's how it went. Okay. Yeah. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Chris Sakalakis. He is the CEO of Wine Marketplace Vivino and the former president of StubHub. So you show up in Philadelphia, and – Undergrad Wharton is, as I understand it, a pretty intense experience mm-hmm. with a lot of very motivated, very intelligent, very driven students. Mm-hmm. At, at what point did you start to get a sense for what you wanted to do in business when you were in Philadelphia at Penn? I started really enjoying the uh, management courses, the ones that talked about how you manage a business and the strategy courses. And I saw, you know, Wharton was known then and certainly still is known now as a finance school. People leave Wharton and go on to work at Wall Street. And, the, and I just couldn't understand finance. I, I couldn't understand the point of it. It seemed like people <laughs> were just moving numbers around. And, you know, I came from a background of working with my hands to build stuff. You, you work on a construction site and you walk in one – one day, and at the end of the day, you look up, and there are all these light fixtures in the ceiling that you put up there and, and made work, and you get a sense of accomplishment. And I didn't get that kind of sense that you'd be able to do something like that with Wall Street. And so what I got a lot more interested in is thinking more broadly about business. My dad had a business. He had multiple businesses, actually. He had electrical construction. He did general construction. Then he started doing real estate development. And I had that perspective of a small business like that. And I didn't want to specialize in just one area. So I thought the best opportunity was to focus on something that was broad-based. And uh, Warren had this great program called Entrepreneurial Management. And uh, I I concentrated in that and in real estate, real estate because of my dad's influence. But Entrepreneurial Management, what I liked about it was it was a broad way of looking at a business overall, not just finance, not just management, not just uh, marketing, but everything together. And I like that broad remit, that broad In a relatively scrappy way. Exactly, yeah. How do you start something from scratch? How do you build something? I mean, ultimately, that's what's interesting about what what we're trying to do at Vivino and what I feel like we've done in the past in the companies where I've been. So when I was there, I took a bunch of classes in entrepreneurial management. And uh, I was a finance major. But the reason I did that is because I was trying to understand what is the source of value in business and Uh how does that come out. But – Putting that aside, how did you end up in California? Uh, so, you know, I left Penn. I uh, took a job at Bain & Company because I felt that would allow me to continue to look at businesses in a broad way and think about business problems. And I gravitated towards the consumer um, consumer clients and consumer um, consumer problems. So the most interesting client I had was John Deere. Uh, when I worked in in Boston, and then I went to the UK and worked in I worked in Poland for a little bit and worked in uh, Moscow for a year. But I really so, liked. So, so you're excited about joining a leading, world leading management consulting firm, one of the big, gold plated, well known, well respected firms. 
to do these things. Yes, and excited about the scope of the work, which is really being continuing my business education essentially, but getting paid for it. Um, and understanding a variety of different businesses. It was the variety that was interesting to me. You could look at a bunch of different businesses. And through that variety, I got, ex- I got exposed to enough to understand what I liked and what I didn't like. And after you know three years in Boston, I worked in Europe and really um, felt like I, I got a lot out of the Bain system. But I got, once I got back from Moscow and started working on UK clients, it sort of dawned on me that this is kind of boring work. And I didn't feel fulfilled because... I was just advising. I was not doing anything myself. And some clients were good about implementing what we, uh, what we suggested and others were not. And that was just frustrating. And so I, I took the summer off. I took the summer of 95 off. So you just off. quit or you took a leave? No, like I took a, a leave. leave. I took a one-year leave of absence. One year. I mean, it's, it didn't start with that specific number in mind, but it was I'm guessing a year. you didn't call your Greek mom and say, I'm taking a year off. No, and it was unpaid. I didn't get paid. All I had was my voicemail a laptop, and uh, health benefits. Did she freak out or did you not tell her? Uh, I don't remember that. I, you know, I, I gave up trying to please my parents a long time ago. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but what I did with that time off was really think about what do I really want to do. And that was the summer of 95. Netscape went public. I, I read What Colors Your Parachute, did the exercises, and realized I really wanted to work in consumer uh, stuff and in technology. And I, what I saw was the advent of the internet in that summer and how in Boston at the time, no, I was in London. Okay. Uh, and how it would really change people's lives, how it would make everything a lot more easy, a lot easier and a lot more efficient. And I started getting obsessed with the internet. Um, I, I got a CompuServe account. There was no AOL at the time. So it was, I had a dial up modem built into my, the laptop that, uh, Bain had loaned to me. And I started doing my research about what was out there. And I just saw the promise of the internet. And I tried to stay in London because I, I loved London. I still love London. But I couldn't find uh, the type of internet company that I wanted in London. Um, and I started to talk to people who said, you should talk to so-and-so and so-and-so. I talked to Mike Moritz at Sequoia back then. I got introduced, I got introduced to Tim Kugel at Yahoo. So this is very early days at um, – TK. Yeah. At, well, I didn't know him that well. But uh, – I got introduced to a bunch of people and started talking to them. And they're like, you know what? If you want to work in the internet industry, you need to move here. And so I did. So, I, you, so you flew out. You got these introductions. Most of them were just over the phone. But then I oh. got other introductions. Um, and I talked to a bunch of companies in Chicago and New York and San Francisco. I had a bunch of friends here from, from Penn and also from Bain. And everyone's like, look, if you want to work here, just move here and you'll find something. And so sure enough, I, I moved here. No job. Uh, no place to live. Uh, stayed with friends for a month or so before so I found So you got a apartment. one-way ticket. Yep. Okay. One-way ticket, moved all my stuff, and I was going to make a go of it. And I. Um, and this is late 95? 96. 96. So this is March of 96. Um, I found someone I knew from Bain who was at a startup called Big Book that did online yellow pages. And his name was Steve Kessel, and he hired me as a contractor to look at potential international expansion opportunities. And through that, I started talking to other people. And for people not familiar with Big Book, it was the Yellow Pages online, yeah. as I recall. Which is, which is you know, you just use Google for that now, but that's... Yeah. Or Craigslist or any yeah. number of things. But that was the idea. Yeah. And it was a huge idea. Well, and they also had driving directions built into it using MapQuest and integration with MapQuest. Again, it's all, if you use uh, Google Maps, it's all built in. But at the time, no one else was doing this. And uh, so I got to see what startup life was like, and I got this exposure, and I, I just – I really loved it. Um, and, that, and after that, I got hired by a small investor group to run a company that eventually became nonprofitauction.com. It was a charity auctions online. It was a horrible name. Don't, don't rely on me for naming. Um, and uh, so I did that for about a year and a half, uh, started the business, hired people, built out a website, got charities to work with us. But it was just a very slow moving, you know, we had 12 charities in 12 months. And when we went to raise funding we, in 99 uh, and 98, sorry, 97, 98, when everyone else was raising money, we, we couldn't raise money. I, I have to say that that's remarkable because so how badly people... I failed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So many people raised money on nothing. I mean, consider that when eBay went public in 98, 
they had $4 million in trailing 12-month revenue. $4 million. $4 million. Yeah, that's, it, it is a small number. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I mentioned this to Pierre Remediary. He's like, yeah, but the growth. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No well, one's arguing that eBay shouldn't have gone public. So, so anyhow, you went through this experience. It didn't work out. Yeah, so after that, I found that people were asking me for help with their startups, and I, I became a consultant again. But now I had this startup to experience, and I was helping people. And I did that for a while, and it was okay because I could, I could charge people a decent amount of money. I didn't have to work all the time. But once, uh, once uh, September 11th happened in 2001, business dried up, and uh, I had a couple of lean years before um, I finally went – I finally said to myself, I, I need to get back into a company and start – doing something and I really want to be part of a great internet company and eBay was one of the companies I targeted I, I had uh, a former Bain colleague there who uh, took me under his wing and kind of helped me look for op opportunities and after six months of kind of talking back and forth he said hey I, I got something for you and I, I, I drove down to San Jose he took me through a, a strategy presentation for eBay stores and said what do you think I said sounds great he goes well the job's yours if you want it and that's how I got to eBay and it was that simple yeah, but it sounds like it helps that you worked together before. It did definitely help. He had an idea of what what Bain experience uh, could do and and how it could be applicable in the job. And then, how long were you at eBay before you led the acquisition of StubHub? I was at eBay three and a half years uh, before the end of two thousand and six when uh, we started doing the due diligence for StubHub, and then. Uh, uh, bought the company in the beginning of 2007. So for an acquisition like that, how does it start? How does it be – does somebody come up with the idea or is there yes. a shopping list or – Someone comes up with the idea. So at the time, we had category managers for the 24 categories on on eBay, and one of those categories is tickets. And the category manager for tickets is a guy named Greg Bettinelli who's at Upfront Ventures. He's a venture capitalist now in in Los Angeles. Brilliant guy who said, these guys are crushing us. We should buy them. And he, and he was the guy in charge of the business. He was in charge saying. of the tickets category. He's like, these guys are doing it the right way, and we're doing it the wrong way. So he got some people involved. Uh, eBay went out and tried to buy the company in 2004 or 2005. And uh, the talks broke down because of valuation. I think StubHub wanted $25 million or $30 million. And eBay wanted to pay $20 million. In the end, oh, eBay paid $307 million right. yeah. two years later. Yeah. But that was how it broke down. So Greg – So the bid ask was 20 versus 25 roughly. Something like that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, so Greg, uh, Greg persevered, kept at it, kept nagging people about it. And I say that in the best way possible because I love Greg. He's a great guy. And got uh, – got, Bill Cobb, who was running North America, eBay North America, convinced that we should do this thing and, uh, and led, led the push for the acquisition. Once the board approved the potential acquisition of, of StubHub, uh, John Donahoe, who was running Marketplace at the time, eventually became the CEO of eBay, asked me if I'd run the company. And that's when I got involved in the due diligence. So he tracked you down. He said, hey, we're working on this thing. Would you like to run it if we pick it up? Yeah, because I was John was my boss's boss at the time. And at the time, he and my boss, Bill Cobb, were talking to me about potential other roles within the company. And that's and, how it came about. And what did, what did you say? Sounds interesting. How does that conversation go? Well, they came to me with three options, actually. One was working, running consumer marketing for PayPal. One was running the eBay classifieds business. And one was running StubHub if we buy the company. So it was a theoretical <laughs> job at, at the time. And so I spent some time with the, the uh, PayPal folks and uh, Dana Salter, you probably know from Matrix Partners now, also in Venture Capital, said to me, he's like, look, if, if you want to do this job, you have to really love payments. And I was like, who, who the hell <laughs> Going back payments? to what you talked about yeah. at Wharton. Finance, yeah. We're not exactly beating down the doors of the finance department. Yeah. So okay. I'm like, who, who the hell loves payments? So that, that was out. I thought about the classifieds business, and then finally I asked Bill Cobb, who knew me pretty well. Bill Bill became the CEO of H and R Black and stepped down recently. Uh, I'm like, "What do you think?" And he goes, "You know what? You should do stuff up. You'll have a blast. It'll be an absolute blast." And he was right. So, when a company like that is acquired, what role do you play in the negotiation of valuation? 
Zero. Okay. So we had a corp dev department, uh, ably, and there's a team captain, corp dev captain, this guy, Jacopo Lenzi, who's at uh, Samsung right now. I saw him a couple of weeks ago. Awesome guy, ex-investment banking background, did the nitty-gritty negotiations. My job was really trying to understand the business and, and think about – and then sign so up for a number. Are you willing to do it? Yeah. Okay. Sign up for a number uh, of in terms of revenue and opping uh, for the next three years in order to make sure the valuation was correct. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because the bigger a number you sign up for, the more they're willing to pay. That's right. Kind of. Kind of, yeah. So they had, you know, they valued the company based on multiples and based on a discounted cash flow. I mean, in the end, we bought a company that was doing 15 million in EBITDA, 100 million in net revenue, 400 million in gross sales, that had doubled in 2006 versus 2005. We bought that company for 307 million. So it was a it was a very good number, and we more than made our uh, projections. And can you say how much it grew after that, or is that? Yeah, we can say up. we can say because uh, so when we bought StubHub, it was four hundred million in gross sales. When I left uh, in two thousand and fourteen, it was three point two billion in gross sales. Wow! And last year uh, in two thousand and seventeen, I believe the number was about four point six billion. It's now public. Wow, that's a big number. Yeah, so the company's done well, and. Uh, and, you know, we bought a very good company, and we made it better. So we've got about a minute here. I do want to ask you, because you have such deep experience with marketplaces, mm-hmm. other than Vivino mm-hmm. and other than the big companies, what do you think is the most interesting new marketplace that's coming along, one or two new marketplaces? In general, I'm really interested in uh, service marketplaces, and B2B marketplaces. I think I've seen a lot of growth there, a lot of interesting companies. I will, I will give a plug for my friend Andre Haddad at Turo, which is a marketplace for the, the, say, the rental of cars. Uh, the idea being that um, you, know, you have this car that's idle 90% of the time and you can use it. And it's part of the sharing economy in this kind of broader sense. Certainly Airbnb is another prominent example of that, Uber and so forth. But uh, I think this idea of taking an asset that's underutilized, creating supply where none existed before uh, through a marketplace that enables that supply. Those are very interesting concepts to me. Great. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Rob. Great to see you. And for people that want to follow you, not just Vivino, where can they find you online? Uh, On Twitter, I'm at at Chris Sakalakis, just like it sounds. Okay. (laughs) All right. I'll go through that. T-S-A-K-A-L-A-K-I-S. You got it. And then conventional Chris before that. That's right. Great. Well, thanks again, Chris. Thank you, Rob. So that just about does it for today's show. Thank you all for joining us. Be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. And to follow me, I blog regularly at 280.vc, or you can follow me on Twitter at Rob Connybeer. I'd like to thank today's guests. We had Indu Navar and, once again, Chris Sakalakis. Thanks also to our producer, Brian Drew, as well as Dana Cash, assistant producer, Charlene Goto, and engineer, our engineer today, Danielle Bruno. And thank you for joining us on today's show. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 